There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. And today we have one of those lovely shows where I get to talk to an executive who's actually been there and done that through a series of out of the comfort zone transitions. So we're going to talk to Annie Rogers about her experience on two occasions and what it was actually like to move out of the comfort zone. Annie is a highly accomplished media professional with over 25 years of client service, business development, team development in broadcast and communications. And what that means is that she spent over 20 years in senior leadership positions in media and in media sales for NBC, CNBC, and Discovery Channel. And then in addition to that, she went on the agency side in media buying, planning, and strategy. And I'm happy to say also Annie is... um, completing her certification as an executive coach. So, Annie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda, and thank you for inviting me to take part. Delighted to have it. I'm actually looking forward to this. I know bits and pieces of this story, so kind of hearing it all together, I think, will be a lot of fun. So, let's start. You know, you you had all of these years of experience in media. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing, just real briefly, and then I want to talk about that first transition Sure. Um, Well, as you said, a long-standing career in media sales, and ultimately what that represented for me was building up a very specialist skill in talking to brands, marketing directors um, across Europe, and representing the product interests of anyone from the Wall Street Journal to CNBC to Discovery Networks. So understanding the metrics and the KPIs and the dynamics of the advertising industry and the media sales industry was where I kind of built my career and my network and my area of expertise. I went through the ranks, as many of us do, in sort of going from selling to managing small teams to then larger teams, Um, and I soon was fortunate enough to work for an international media owner like Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal, so then got to work with lots of different cultures and sell to lots of different businesses across the world. But it was really when I joined Discovery where I was introduced to the notion of um, really supersizing and supercharging a commercial business. So Discovery at the time um, when I joined was, I think it was fair to say, a sleeping giant in advertising sales terms. And what the then um, MD of the European business wanted was to bring someone on board who was slightly more commercially aggressive to change that business and ramp up the commercial development, both in terms of product launches, team culture, and, um, and, and, and product development across the area. So that was a great opportunity for me to go in and look strategically at the business, um, but with the experience of obviously having sold a lot of advertising through the years and managed a lot of teams, create a culture where we could really make things change and impact the culture of the organization in doing so, and, of course, the bottom line. Okay. So 
curious, so you've got all this expertise in getting advertising sales and selling advertising slots, if I put it in a, in a common language, to various mm-hmm. products and brands and companies around the world. And you transition into discovery where they don't have very much going on and suddenly you're the one that's going to help them ramp up. Now, how much of a cultural change had that been from where you were prior to that moment in time? Well, I'd come into Discovery from, um, well, two things I would mention there. I'd come from Discovery, I'd come to Discovery having been trained through CNBC, NBC, and part of a a very big commercially driven organization, which is obviously GE. So the speed and the effort with which and the pressure that we were under to change pretty much constantly in terms of both our approach to media sales and the product development we had um, was quite fast. And I think as I came into Discovery, the role that advertising played within the business was relatively small, and it was certainly small in terms of its competitors across the region. The far more dominant revenue was coming from affiliate sales, the distribution sales. So the culture within the advertising sales part of the discovery business in Europe was um, quite quiet. Um, They were a well-respected group of people. They were certainly very professional, but um, it was it was soft and I would say kind of fairly pedestrian um, with limited ambition. And so what we thought we needed to do was shine a light on the opportunity in the gap and then build the team and build the culture around that. And it wasn't that these people weren't competent or equipped to do it. Nobody had put the leadership in, in place to really drive that forward because it hadn't been a strategic imperative up until that point. And that was because the other revenue builder of the business was, was so important and growing so fast. So that we had to come in and change that culture and also change the internal perception within discovery of advertising sales in general. Okay. So how did you, tell me a little bit about how you actually went about changing that culture. Because a lot of people talk about changing culture and not very many people succeed in making it happen. So how mm-hmm. did that, what did you do to make it happen? Well, I think the first thing that we did was, you, you know, you lift the lid on how people are doing things and mm-hmm. you explore with them a vision that you create alongside them. And I felt very passionate personally about what could be achieved to take this brand and the business and the advertising sales revenue and the team to a different level. So I think the most important thing from, from my for my contribution to building and changing that culture was it had a lot to do with me and my personal belief. Um, and so that hope and vision that was created with the then team, and obviously we had to increase the size of the team, so we hired other people as well to help us along the way. Um, so creating the vision and the mission for the advertising sales team was the first part, um, underpinning that with the actual people, the systems, and the practices um, that need to be put in place so that you can actually reach it. So I think okay. the culture was setting setting the bar and setting the goal and setting the goal in a way that's, you know, clearly obtainable but very aspirational and then helping people understand what needs to happen in a very stepwise fashion to get there. And that is everything from looking at productivity, um, agreeing what pro- productivity should look like, 
looking at what you mean by that vision. So again, in ad sales, it's, you know, how creative do we need to be with our clients? Do they perceive us as creative? So again, we did, we, we started by undertaking a fairly deep audit in terms of looking at the perception of the advertising agencies, the clients about what the discovery offering was. So we did a 360 and we helped each other really path the way to looking at what, what was required, the tools that were required, the internal resources that were required to set the culture. But we agreed the culture as part of a number of um, initial off-sites. What kind of people did we want to have employing? What did the day look like for someone on the ad sales team? Uh, what were the values of our team? So we spent quite a lot of time looking at where we were in the market, what our clients thought of us, and then what kind of environment we needed to create. And some things were as simple as, you know, we need to be um, on the phones. We need to be talking to clients. We need to have more meetings in the diary. We need to be more creative in the solutions that we provide them with. We need to be quicker at turning the solutions around. We need to be more solution-oriented in an organization that, um, you know, had, had done things the same way for a long time. So a lot of that work in terms of the culture was as much internal comms, and that's where my role came in, to talk to other kind of business leaders within Discovery that these things are required for you to do to help this function um, operate at its best and move forward. So I think there was a lot of um, questions that were asked. There was a lot of reflection at the beginning. Um, some of it, some people didn't really see was possible. So there was a leap of faith for some. For some people, they weren't interested in being part of that, of that journey. Um, but there was a lot of honest reflection on what was required and then agreement as to how we would come back and make it happen and review it. And I think the culture is set by those important reviews so checking in with right. teams senior and middle how you know how are we doing yeah i love this that there was a lot of data both external data as well as some internal data and that you get people together on off sites and there's some agreement about where you're going okay so mm -hmm. great success there tell us about this first major transition because in some ways you're changing cultures but you're still mm -hmm. within your expertise zone, which is advertising yes. sales. Yes. So yeah. what happens then, and how did this transition go? Okay. So about two years into my role at Discovery, we, we had successfully changed the advertising sales culture, both in, on the international side of the business and the local market and side. So I was responsible for international media and local um, and it was a matrices-type organization. So having launched many, many channels, the, the revenue had, you know, increased considerably. Um, my boss said, how about taking on the leadership of the affiliate sales part of the business, which really always had the lion's share of the revenue? Um, so whilst my job on ad sales was to, you know, tip the balance towards advertising um, away from affiliate, this was now an opportunity to go and really become the leader of the, the biggest revenue portion of the business. And 
I, but whilst I understood the dynamics of, of that business in terms of how it affected the bottom line of discovery, I didn't know anything about the operational side of it. I just knew that there was a big affiliate sales team out there. They worked in the same offices as my ad sales team, but I had no clue what went into a contract. I knew it was a cost per sub. I knew we were dealing with, you know, telco operators and, you know, cable operators around the region and that it was as complex as it was sophisticated because the entire industry was undergoing a series of convergence. So when this was suggested to me, um, on the one hand, I was so excited because I could see that, you know, again, that's a wonderful opportunity for me. But by the same token, I was absolutely terrified. Um, Not terrified or nervous about getting my head around the detail or the learning, but I was somewhat nervous about how others within the organization might judge this decision Um, because, you know, they will have had 10, 20, even more years' experience um, in doing their expert area. What value could I bring? Um, And I think that's also um, exacerbated by the fact that if you are in a central corporate role, which I was, you were always working hard to show your clients, your internal clients in the local market, so you are adding value. Um, so that was, that was kind of a double whammy, if I might say. So that was where the nerves were. I kind of I didn't feel lacking in confidence in understanding the market, and I questioned how quickly can I get to a point where I know what I'm talking about, because I had to be very honest, like, well, I kind of don't know really what I'm talking about. So that was the immediate reaction to it, to answer your question. Okay. So this sounds like quite a major leap. So you go from, so it's still sales to sales, but it's sales that's structured in a completely different way, where the contracts are different, the process is different, the players are different, the sequence of the sales are different, the consequences of the sales are different, and the revenue stream is massive. So I can see, even though it's sales to sales, it's such a different complex area. And I can well imagine people are sitting there going, I've been here 10, 20 years longer than her. Why her? And more importantly, why not me? So how did you deal with that? How easy was it to bring people along? Well, I think I dealt with it in the main and most importantly with honesty. Um, I I ensured that um, as soon as, well, the first thing I did was when it was discussed with me or when the opportunity was um, suggested to me, I wanted to fully understand from my line manager, the then MD, what his expectations were of this role. So where did he want me and why had he asked me to do this? Because I needed to understand from him um, and from the organization in general where where this was going, because I had always discussed with them a dream, a vision of creating a center of excellence for all commercialization of that business. So a center of excellence for sales. So irrespective of what you're selling, I always firmly believe that you can market and develop anything with a degree of, you know, intellectual integrity and service and execution. So it's not that I felt siloed in myself, but I wanted to be clear that their vision was the same as my vision. Um, And then when I clarified that with him, what I realized I needed was I needed a very strong expert at the center to support me. Um, And so I hired somebody who was, you know, very well experienced, 
10, 15 years experience in affiliate sales, had worked for Turner, um, was deeply rooted in a market that we were looking to develop business, um, which at the time was Germany. And so I knew I needed someone to, to help me at the center do this as well as I could. But what I also um, realized was that there were lots of parallels. Obviously, as you said yourself, there are, there are many parallels in the process and the culture and the practice and the systems, irrespective of what was being sold, that we, need, we knew we needed to work on with the local teams. I also observed that the local affiliate teams were in a somewhat similar place to the local ad sales teams two years ago, i.e. they were feeling fairly siloed. They didn't share a lot of information or best practice. Um, and even though they were responsible for a huge line of revenue, um, their development needs and their, their concerns for how the organization was, was helping them were, were already apparent to me. So the first thing I did was talk to my boss about his expectations. I mapped them against this key internal hire for me at a VP level. Um, and then together with her and another key component, who was my commercial controller, who was the deep analytics um, person, um, we then designed a template that we took to market. And so we went to market, and by market I mean our local offices, and we we developed a framework to understand the business. So we did a semi-internal audit, um, although I don't like the word audit. It was an information gathering um, exercise across the region. And we asked the local offices where they thought we could add value. So rather than being prescriptive, we went in a very open manner to the businesses who we were, all, we were already very well connected with in terms of the ad sales side of the businesses, and we talked to the GMs and the affiliate teams about their market, their business, what they needed, where the pressure points were, and how we could serve them best from that central function. And I think that exercise alone established a credibility in just how you just approach a business problem to help solve it because every market has its own problems. And it also avoided, um, you know, the notion or the impression that we've come in from the center and suddenly everything's going to be different because central now runs affiliate sales. So we were actually adding value to their business. Um, and then after that, we fed back um, a synthesized version of all of those markets and what affiliate sales looks like. We then determined what information should be best shared, where skill sets could be improved upon, um, and we sought agreement across those multiple markets on the affiliate side. And from there, we started, you know, a very straightforward um, planning and reporting function. Um, whether it was monthly sales meetings, quarterly meetings in London for all of the teams to get together, and then an annual conference where, you know, the, the, the affiliate sales teams had their best in global practice presented to them. Um, and then a year later, we had an entire conference with all sales functions that included affiliate sales, ad sales, and indeed licensing and digital. So that was generally the process that I adopted. Okay. So again, we get Nada, I'm here with the answer and I know what to do, but I'm here to yeah. understand what your challenges and what your problems are and where you need help from Central to advance your cause. Yeah. 
and I like this notion that you go through with the commercial controller and with an internal expert who's sort of a bit of your right hand to create an Mm -hmm. analysis process, if you will, an information gathering process on each of the local offices so you get a sense of where the business is and can show them that you understand their business. So um, did it take long? I mean, how many months did it take before affiliates were beginning to say, oh, yeah, this is okay, and he can help us? I think it took three months, three to four months. Wow. Um, you know, there's lots of markets, so you're, you're tra- and you're also running, you know, your other ad sales business, although I'd empowered a number of people and had delegated some kind of senior meetings that I would have otherwise chaired on that mm-hmm. side of things. But I think within, um, within at least six weeks, I'd been to every market um, with either the commercial controller or the, the affiliate, my affiliate expert. Okay. And then within 10 weeks, we had definitely turned around our, our observations, our understanding, our analysis, and our ideas for approval. Okay. And those were um, presented first to the then SMT, so the Senior Management Team of Europe. So they were my peer group across all the GMs from the different markets, and my boss, not least. And then their um, input was incorporated, and then we took it back to market. And we had an all-team meeting that was, um, you know, a, a web kind of webinar-type meeting where we discussed it, and then we brought everyone together. And so it had allowed us to uh, kind of shine a light on, you know, the hot spots that require immediate intervention. Um, and, and sometimes it was just very, it was quite dull stuff, but it was, you know, a game changer. So there was systematic reporting things that had no consistency across the region, um, just because it had never been required before. But, it, it, you know, it meant that that general sight of deal terms and mechanics would have been a lot harder to find um, had, you know, one team member left or another. Right. So some of it was quite dull, but even the dull stuff was like, oh, that actually would be very helpful if we had that, and everybody appreciated that. And then you had the other stuff, which was about training and bringing in other experts and opening the affiliate team's minds to what does it mean, what does this convergence in your industry look like? So mm-hmm. we had ideas like bringing speakers in, thought leaders, journalists, um, we looked at people's profiles. So it was quite expansive in the way it looked at the team and the people. So I think where I, what, what I believe was a successful approach was you look at the business problem, the strategy, but I made sure that I looked at what every individual needed within those teams. So I made sure I had like a quick one-to-one with every individual as well as the team to really try and understand what their issues were, what their kind of training requirements were, and then we brainstormed ideas. So it, was, it, it wasn't just the dry analysis. It was absolutely about the, you know, the culture and the team. So, Annie, this is like every other story I hear, when, which is great from my point of view, by the way. <laughs> okay. just, to, just to put the high-level picture on this one, when I talk to people about taking a job outside of their expertise – It's not that you have no expertise to add, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that you do not know. There's a couple of common elements. One is making sure you have somebody that you're close to who does know the details and that you can count Mm. on for that. And you had that person, both the internal promote who understood the market, but you also had the controller, the commercial controller, who gave you, you know, some technical details. So already you've created a little bit of a team in and of itself. 
And then there is this process of figuring out how it is that you're going to add value to the team itself. So every time I've talked to somebody who makes this transition, there is that find the place that I can add value. And what's interesting about most of them is it often involves asking the individuals that you're now leading, how can I add value? Now, you do this in a very nice you know, kind of mini audit or mini information gathering of each of your affiliate groups or local offices, and then some mm. feedback, some synthesis and feedback, and some best practice sharing. And then the third thing that is critical in every one of these cases is something about bringing the people together to share information and practices with each other that they had never done before. And you have the same thing here. You got people all on a webinar, you got a conference, you're giving them feedback, you're trading best practices, you're doing some standardization, and ultimately you bring everybody together for a long-term conference. I mean, those mm-hmm. are the home, the hows, the particulars of hows will vary with every situation, but the overarching principle of finding experts, finding way that you add value and doing it in a collaborative manner with the teams that you're leading, building the quality of the team seems to me a great process because I've always seen it work. Yeah. I I, I think where where we also um, focus that one of the areas where we could add value or rather where I brought in my heavy hitter my heavy hitter at Central um, with affiliate sales was, of course, when these contracts go awry um, because nothing is smooth sailing when you're negotiating, whether you're negotiating with UPC, which was also part of the family that owns Discovery. Um, so, again, it's a, quite a conflicted and compromising yeah. at times um, relationship. Um, but it was often those areas where individuals in the local market could have a different conversation with us, a trusted one and an independent one, that they felt they might not be able to have locally either with a line manager because they could rely on this independent expert, as it were, centrally to help them think through different ways of tackling a negotiation or a problem or even getting an internal solution. So we used to have things like like mini clinics for when mm-hmm. you know these things were seemed to be going south or deals were falling off a cliff or you know in in and broadcast terms you know you can literally be switched off and obviously the the consequences of that are dire both for subscribers and advertisers and it really can run to the wire so what we what we also experienced was that those really high pressure points um, we were a nice place for people to call on to say it's happening. They could be very honest without sort of fearing rebuttal from a, maybe a line manager or thinking they were going to lose their job. So there was a there was a trust that was built there. I think when we we had people take recourse to that function, and you know that was a reflection of how we operated as individuals as well. That's right, and it's reflective of the process. Because had you come in and said, "Here's how we're going to do it, and here's what I think needs to happen, and here's what Central's decided," you would not have had trust. You would have had the absolute yeah. opposite. But it's a little scary to say, "Oh, geez, you tell me what you need." That doesn't feel like the way we normally lead. No, so, no. Annie, let's take a break at this point, and then we're going to come back and talk about another transition. And then I'm going to ask Andy a whole bunch of other questions around how she gets over some of her nervousness and support systems outside of 
the immediate team that's running with her. So my guest today is Annie Rogers. Annie has 25 years, well, first 20 years in senior leadership roles in media and media sales with organizations like NBC, CNBC, and Discovery Channel. And then she flips to go on the agency side where she's now the media buyer and doing the planning and strategy for that. And we'll talk about that transition when we come back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Annie Rogers, and Annie is a senior leader in media and media sales, working for NBC, CNBC, Discovery Channel, and then shifting to the agency side where she's in media buying. And we've just been talking about Annie's transition from being an expert in advertising sales and moving into an area called affiliate sales. Now, while they're sales, it meant that the operational details of what she took on were completely new. The characters were new, the process was new, the contracts were new, the challenges were new, and so on. And Annie made that transition the way that I often see people making a transition, and that involves, you know, going to the businesses, checking in with them, evaluating in this particular case, kind of doing a mini audit on how the business is going and how are all of them doing it, what are best practices we can share, bringing people together, sharing our observations and insight, and asking them what it was they needed most, then finding a way to add value, and then building the collaborative environment between all those different um, local units. 
So, okay, sounds pretty form, pretty um, like most of the transitions that I hear about in all those processes. A bit nerve-wracking because, as always, you got to build the credibility and trust with the team. And as you just heard, did that pretty successfully. So, Annie, let's talk about the next transition you made in your career. So you go from this lovely experience to decide that you're going on the agency side. So you're doing the opposite side of the role that you've done for 20-some years. So tell us about that yeah. transition. Well, I was um, at the time at CNBC, again, in, a, in, a, in the most sort of senior leadership sales role in EMEA, um, and was probably on the cusp of a, a promotion. Well, I was on the cusp of a, of a promotion, and an opportunity presented itself to me that I couldn't resist. And um, the opportunity was to go and work for a full-service communications agency. So that's an advertising agency that also does creative, that also does PR. Um, and those types of organizations where you're exposed to lots of different things within the communications matrix um, were at the time kind of few and far between. Media agencies were becoming very siloed, so you, you became a specialist very quickly in planning and buying or strategy and creatives rarely have anything to do with the, the media buying side of things. Um, so the organization that approached me um, also specialized in emerging markets, but it was a small company um, and relative to even other agencies, it wasn't part of the WPP group. It was a small independent entrepreneurial commercial, uh, sorry, communications consultancy dealing in emerging markets. And here was I in this great, big, comfortable organization, the Goliath that is a GE-owned business with the security, the resources, the tools, the team, the calling card, the brand identity that, you know, had built my career and to a degree my confidence. Um, and I was looking to put that to one side to go to the other side, and some might say the dark side, um, to join an ad agency. And I think it's worth pointing out that not many people do that. Um, it, often, if you're in a media buying or a planning agency, you would rarely go and work for a media owner. It is um, a little more common these days, um, but you'd rarely go from media owner to the agency side. Um, but I decided to do that because I wanted to see what it was like on the other side. Um, I'd sold to all the agencies throughout my career and their clients, and in, in a way, I was curious was there a kind of a mystique or a magic that was happening behind the, the kind of the Wizard of the Oz curtain that, that was life on the agency side? Was it easier? Was it harder? What was the process? What's the, you know, what drives them? Um, and it was a great opportunity for me to do that in a small company and be exposed to every area of comms. So that's why, that's why I took the challenge on. I, so I cannot imagine. So you spent your life in big, large companies with lots of resources, lots of support, systems and processes, big brands, great calling card, and you've done some wonderful success and some successful changes, even cultural changes in that process. And now you go to this tiny agency. I get the, I can appreciate that you get to see lots more about the process on the opposite side in a small agency. But I can't, I mean, it must have been massive to go from a big group to a very small group and in emerging markets. Yeah. Um, I think most people at um, 
at CNBC were shocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people thought, oh, my gosh, you know, is she crazy? She's going to throw it all away. You have a nice career, potentially trajectory at CNBC and NBC. Um, but for me, it was the right time to, well, to, to quote your show, to push myself from what was becoming quite comfortable. Um, and I think there's, there was a, a desire in me to, to be at the coalface of the client, to be one step closer to understanding a client or, you know, in this case, um, at the agency, it would have been, it was governments. Um, what are their challenges? How do you think through the process of designing a communication strategy for them? Um, because whilst I'd sold to brands and had been responding to briefs, marketing briefs, branding briefs, um, from the perspective of one media owner, um, I'd never really had the opportunity to, to apply that thinking and intellectual um, rigor from multiple media owners. And, you know, in, intrinsically, I'm interested in, I knew I, I loved brands, I knew how to build brands, and I wanted to know what that process looked like from a multimedia perspective. Um, and I was also feeling quite narrow in my role. So right. I wanted the breadth of that, and the small agency gave me the opportunity to do that. So it was no risk, really, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> and do you still say the same in retrospect? Oh, more so. I think it was okay. one of the best things I ever did. Okay. All right. So did you have any advisors or sponsors or supporters around you who were saying, write any good idea? I mean, I know you had lots of people saying this is a disaster. Um. You know, the, the, the sponsors were few and far between, um, I have to say. Um, I think most people were, mm, are you really sure about this? Um, I think trusted friends and family um, and my husband actually said, if you're going to do it, you should do it now. Um, because I was just turning 30 and I, I knew that I was at a point where if I took another level up, within CNBC, I would have been in that role for, you know, another three, four years. Um, and it just seemed like an opportunity that was too good to miss. But intuitively, kind of listening to my head and my own heart, it felt right um, because of the nature of the work that they were doing. And also the man that owned the business, you know, I was, I was impressed with him. I enjoyed working with him and we shared a view on how we might move things forward to help him build his business. So, you know, it was still a, a business development role, um, but the agency was a size where I'd be exposed to the actual nitty-gritty, as it were, of some of the campaigns that they were winning that hopefully I would help them win, but I would also get to manage and run them. So, um, to be honest, Wanda, apart from family, probably most of my professional friends were kind of were questioning that decision because it seemed to them why would why would you take that risk but i've absolutely no regrets on taking it and it took me into a world of people and cultures that i would otherwise never have met um and also i went from there back to corporate the big corporate media ownership with discovery and i went back to my media sales role understanding a whole lot more about how agencies work and the challenges of clients. So I think going to the other side really helped me understand and be a better operator in media sales just because of the exposure I'd had and the experience I'd had in running those campaigns. Great. 
Now, did you get resistance from the other people who are in the small business? As in, why do we need her, and how is she going to help us? Um, not to a not to a huge degree, because I think they, as a small business, they were also very hungry and open to building that business and 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 building the revenue lines, building the thinking. Um, not at all. I don't think I had any resistance. Um, I think people were very open to saying, yes, yeah, you know, there was a little resistance because I might have at times appeared to have been the right-hand person of the business owner. Um, right. But in terms of the practicality of saying, okay, how are we approaching business? How are we running campaigns? Um, I was mindful that my experience with other big brands having sold to them um, equipped me to speak the language. Again, I knew what I was talking about. So I knew when someone talked about, you know, a, a creative strategy or a brand strategy, I could, I could have that debate. I could talk very eloquently to one of their clients because that's what I'd been doing. I was just doing it with a different hat on. Right. So very soon in, that, that was kind of, that sort of level of skill and understanding was proven. So I didn't, I didn't meet too much resistance. Sometimes the creative people within the agencies would find me difficult, um, and I had to learn how to manage creatives. So, you know, if you, if you come from a commercial organization and you're working with commercial people all day, particularly salespeople, you tend to go at kind of fourth gear most days, then let off. And so understanding the time that's required, the environment that's required for creative people to do their stuff, that was a learning for me. And I would say out of all of the different functions within the ad agency, the creators probably thought I was some crazy kind of Americanized corporate, um, <laughs> you know, gunslinger. Um, yes. So that took a little while, but nothing that was untoward. I, I, don't, I don't recall that. So it's just a matter of understanding how to bring, I'm assuming, bring the volume down, the throttle down when you're in front of creatives and giving them the time and the kind of environment to let their creative process go as it goes. Yes, yes, absolutely. So was there anything else that you found difficult about the transition? Um, I think going from a big company, um, it's it's the support and the resources um, at times and the kind of the cozy environment that smaller companies bring sometimes leaves nowhere to hide. Um, you know, in a big company you can, you can get on and you can, there are so many people around it, particularly working at CNBC when you're working in a live studio. Um, there's a pace and a dynamism of that that's very energizing, which is, I think is, works well for commercial teams because you need the energy to, you know, be in touch with your clients, be on the phone, be organizing proposals. So I think the pace of a smaller organization with fewer people, um, some of whom are doing, you know, maybe a research post here or an accounts post there, the creators are doing their thing. I found it was a lot quieter. And that was difficult at the beginning because if you're building the business and you're doing business development and you're wanting to, you're used to that level of, um, you know, kind of speed and just a number of people. Um, so at times it felt a little lonely, yeah, <laughs> I have yeah. to be honest, because it was just quieter. It was just different. So it took me a while to adapt to that. Um, and it took a while to adapt to, you know, sometimes, you know, you didn't have a huge IT department. So yeah. simple things, you had to be patient 
and let it run and, and look for solutions and not, not be, you know, upset or, or rattled by it. Okay. All right. Do you have any magic secrets to teach all of us on how to be more patient when things don't go with the pace that you're expecting? Um, meditation, uh, count to 10, uh, structure some, some goals, some time into the day where, you know, if, if something goes wrong, manage the deadlines. Um, I think patience come through just understanding that, it, you know, it will get done. I think I'm a particular character where I'll set myself relatively high and maybe speedy deadlines, and that comes, I think, of, of many people who are kind of born, you know, or trained as salespeople. Um, but I think patience is just the ability to, to sit tight and think about the real things that are at stake rather than, you know, jumping to a reaction um, or wasting energy because sometimes you have no control. So if you have yeah. no control over a situation, whether it's a printer or a, a virus or some software that won't work, um, you're going to have to adapt and compromise. Yeah, I, that those are all words easy to say when you're not yeah, no. tied up in the emotion of the moment. And when I'm tied up with the emotion of the moment of I'm going to miss this deadline, I'm not going to deliver this client, this is going to, and that whole crazy thinking that goes with that, that emotional energy that goes with it, it's not so easy to say, sit back, be so tight, it'll be okay, back to your priorities, all those sorts of things. All right, Annie, mm-hmm. I have to ask you um, about this one thing that we often hear from people, which has to do with delegate. Right. People ask me all the time, how do you delegate, how do you delegate, how do you delegate? And every senior leader I've ever talked to says, you have to delegate, you have to delegate, you have to delegate. But the truth of the matter is when I delegate and then somebody doesn't deliver the way I expect them to deliver, now what? So what's your experience with delegating? How do you do it well? I think you'll do it best if you best understand the skill sets and quality of the people that you have around you um, in order to determine and know for yourself what you need to delegate and how you're going to delegate it. And in my own experience, you know, we're right, everyone has to delegate. Um, The more senior you become, the ability to coach and empower and, and delegate tasks or steering committees or groups or initiatives to people within your team are critical Um, In my experience, it's been about how and how frequently you check in with people along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly things have been delegated to me in the past where I've just, you know, between the start of that project or something that's been handed to me and its delivery, there's been very little opportunity that I've had because of the delegation to check in with a question because that person or my superior Mm -hmm. is gone and expects it to be done without, and I've not felt like I could go, oh, hold on a minute, I need to do this. So when I've delegated, um, even informally, I've checked in with people on how's it going, um, how are you getting on, are there problems, and just creating an environment where if there is a chink in the armor of something that's being delegated, you can catch it and catch the person um, and assist or provide them with assistance so that you stay as best on track. Um, so that would be the one thing, kind of, you know, regular regular check-ins. And also accepting that, you know, if it comes back and it's not perfect, that is part of your role 
to help help that person improve and improve. So I think it's an acceptance that, you know, it, not everything will be done to 100%, that you need to let people make that mistake where it's not perfect to help them improve. And that's about creating time. So I know when I've delegated tasks on various projects recently, when I've been consulting to people internally, um, I've always allowed a bridge of time so that I've expected it not to be point perfect, but I've built the time in just in case we've got to, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, make amends. Um, so I think, you know, just, just managing those expectations of what you would expect someone to deliver and help them along the way with the regular check-ins. Yeah, I think the the those two things in there that you said that are really, really critical, or three things. One is that I have to check in regularly with people, and that means I have to make the time to make sure that I am regularly checking in with people. And it becomes part of your job to be available to answer questions. Otherwise, it can go quite off the rails for a long time before you actually even realize it's gone off the rails. But then you also said I have to know how the skill set of the person that's around me so I know how regularly I need to check in, how frequently I need to check in. And then the third thing is adding that time, that tiny bit of time in where you know part of your job is to help the person improve. But that means I'm not just delegating, expecting to come back perfect. We're going to have to have a conversation about how to do it differently or what else to do or what you know corrections need to make or so on. And those three are the things that I think people miss all the time. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I, I can distinctly remember having something delegated to me for a global budget meeting um, and walking in and just, you know, the, the confidence or the trust that had been put into me to complete this task, but it wasn't checked before I went into the meeting. I was maybe 99% sure that what I'd done was correct, but because it hadn't been checked, I was a bundle of nerves. And so the delegation had been done, but its impact on me hadn't been as positive as it could have been because I wasn't sure. So I think that checking in is critical, um, you know, prior to, to any kind of the task that you've asked someone or you've delegated to right. someone. Right, right. And even it doesn't have to be that you check every single detail, but if you just check a couple of things, that boosts your confidence that the person's on the right track largely, as well as boosting the individual's confidence that they're doing the right thing. Precisely. Okay. Um, any advice? I mean, so you've made a transition now recently into coaching yourself. Mm-hmm. So looking back as a manager, any advice to people on how to coach and mentor people around you as a manager? Um, as a manager, A, I think it's, it's, it, it is the central role on building the best teams and the greatest of trust. Um, and it is all built on the trust. So your team, giving individual members of your team the opportunity to really be honest and safe and feel like they're in a safe space and place when they're talking to you is critical. Um, I think the managers, when they're looking at people, I I see now as a coach, and I'm surprised um, by it in some organizations, where People don't really have clarity of their own roles and responsibilities. And to me, it appears to be a very fundamental thing that I was fortunately, you know, had benefited from in the organizations that I worked for. And I certainly ensured that anybody that was working with one of my teams 
had a clearly defined role and clearly knew where they were, uh, what the tasks were that they needed to complete, what the development plan was for them, um, and also the frequency with which one talks to that person to coach them, whether it is what examples are or what opportunities there are to take on an extra project or an initiative or to check in on their KPIs. So I think it's, you know, I'd say the first thing is be absolutely crystal clear because if people are clear about what's required of them um, and what's expected, they genuinely feel more secure. Um, and if they aren't equipped to do that, that's the point where they can ask for help or you can provide them with the help. And that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that, you know, as you say, it's the, it's the regularity within, with which you need to check with people. So how many times are you having a one-to-one with your direct reports? Um, some organizations, it's, you know, once a month. Some organizations, it's once a week. Um, I think the quality is as good as the quantity and what works for the organization, but it shouldn't be left too long um, because there's too much change, too much going on. So I think regularity of communication and clarity of communication and enjoying, I think, you know, the enjoyment of building someone's day on a day-to-day basis is a great reward to any manager. Um, And so if you can impact somebody's life in that way, through their work and the work that they do, then that's a real privilege um, to have as a, as a manager. So, yeah, so coaching, managing, feedback, 360s, appraisals, the trust and the confidence that, 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 are, that are built through that, I think, are, you know, worth their weight in gold. And it is a privilege because you have that a duty of care to that person and a responsibility to ensure that their career grows as a result of your your, your management of them. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. One of the senior guys that I've spoken with, he's in the financial services industry, but he says, you know, if you want to get credibility of your team, you do three things. He's going to say it in slightly different words than you, but the same intent. Number one, he says, is clean up your org chart, meaning make it clear who has what roles and responsibilities, who's doing what, and we don't have three people doing the same kind of thing. Okay. So what is it I want you to do? What's the role? What's expected? And the second thing is he said you have to talk to people regularly about their development. If you're not, you have no respect. So their development and how they're doing. And then you've added this um, piece about check-in with people, which we could merge into that one. And then Mm -hmm. the third thing he says is you have to have some sense of vision of where we're going. You know, what are we trying to achieve? It might be a grand thing, but what are we trying to do here and what's my role in doing that? Yeah, I think that is a really important piece. And I see in organizations that gets lost further down the food chain. And lots of people that are in junior positions or even, you know, lower management positions um, see senior management teams all too often go off for strategy days and it sits there. So they feel slightly displaced and disjointed from what's set out to be something that's highly intellectual. Most people in organizations at every level, I believe, should know what their part is in the company driving forward and attaining a certain vision and a mission. And I think there's there's sometimes a slightly elitist thing that goes on in senior management teams, which suggests that, you know, that's the clever stuff and it doesn't get fed down. And I think that is also reflective of an inability for internal communications to be rich, but also other um, functions within organizations to really know what the company vision is, whether that's, you know, IT, HR, 
it's often not knitted together, and I think that also supports the notion of managing and coaching because it's got to be a coaching culture um, where everything is, you know, understood and discussed and those values are, you know, consistent across the organization. Okay. All right, Annie, I have a feeling we could keep talking, but I like this notion of this involved, you know, the cycle of communication that goes from the top of the organization to the bottom of the organization, back to the top of the organization. I get the sense as you've led in each of these roles, there's then been that free flow of communication in a safe way that people can tell the truth. So with me today is Annie Rogers. As you've heard, Annie has over 25 years experience in the media, media sales, and on the agency side with companies like NBC, CNBC, and Discovery Channel. And Annie, thank you for being a guest today. Thank you, Wanda. All right, and join us next week for another episode on Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.